This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Facebook. At Facebook, we continue to take steps to better secure our platforms. What's next? We support updated internet regulations to set new standards for data portability, privacy, and elections. Learn more at about.fb.com regulation. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hey, it's Ross Helderman from The Post calling. How are you? Hey there, it's Sungman from The Post. Um, hey, it's Dave Farron from The Post. Have you got a second? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, September 16th. Today, the government responds to COVID outbreaks at meat plants, how the pandemic is hurting family doctors, and a big reversal from the Big Ten. At the beginning of the pandemic, meat plants were one of the biggest hotspots in the nation. Of course, we had hotspots in nursing homes and jails, but meat plants in particular were a problem. People are working in very close proximity to one another in an enclosed area for hours and hours at a time. And in the beginning of the pandemic, they didn't have masks and they didn't have gloves and they didn't have other protective gear. They weren't doing any social distancing, not even in like the cafeteria. And that really went on for weeks uh, while cases just spiked. I'm Kimberly Kindy, and I'm an investigative reporter for The National Desk. And what do we know are the repercussions of that, or how many people got sick because of these practices at meatpacking plants? Well, there were a number of people who became sick and ill and died. Um, Since March, more than 40,000 meatpacking workers have tested positive for coronavirus, and that's in 494 meat plants. And there were 203, as of a few days ago, who have died. And a few of those were just within the last week or two. So so now that we know that, what are the actions that are being taken against the people managing these meatpacking plants? Well, in March, thousands of people who work in meat plants and the unions that represent them file complaints with OSHA. That's the federal organization that is in charge of making sure that the workplace is safe for people. And after six months, OSHA finally did take some action, but it only fined two plants. And we're talking about problems in more than 400 meat plants. So two plants received fines, one a Smithfield plant in South Dakota, another one JBS in Colorado. Both of these companies are gigantic companies. They're global companies, the Smithfield company is worth $14 billion. JBS is worth more than $51 billion. And the fines were very small. The fine for the Smithfield plant was just a little over $13,000. Hmm. The one for JBS was just a, a little over $15,000. That really seems like a drop in the bucket. That's exactly what the people who filed complaints and the workers feel In their minds and their experience, fines that are this small simply don't produce change. Hmm. And not only are they asking for change really late in the game, but they also are, you know, giving penalties that are very small to companies that are very, very wealthy. 
The way OSHA works, when it's functioning properly, they try to find a company or companies where there are some systemic problems and then go after one of the bad actors or some of the bad actors and make them an example by virtue of, you know, publicly showing the problems and calling attention to it, as well as giving big fines. That's when it's working properly. And the reason why that is how they work is because in order for OSHA to go to every individual workplace that they're responsible for, it would take them 160 years Hmm. to go to every place. So the way that they actually get industries to behave better is by setting an example. So so what you're saying makes sense from the perspective of, yeah, they focused on these two companies because they could create examples out of these two companies that would send a message to the rest of the meatpacking industry. But it does seem like if the fine is so low, that doesn't send a message of, you all need to get your act together to make big, important systemic changes to be able to protect workers. But instead... If you don't make those changes, we're just going to give you a slap on the wrist and that it's okay if people continue to get sick at your workplace. Yeah, that's what former OSHA officials told me. It doesn't work if the fine is small, not if, if the company can just shake it off. They said it just doesn't change behavior. This is the first citation that the agency gave to an employer after receiving thousands and thousands of complaints from all industries, but also the first citation in meatpacking, where we know over 40,000 workers have been infected. It's spread back out into the community. Hundreds have died. And this was barely a slap on the wrist. Debbie Berkowitz has been really following this issue. Um, She's a former OSHA chief of staff in the Obama administration. And I run the Worker Safety and Health Program at the National Employment Law Project. And is very knowledgeable about the infection rates and what has happened and hasn't happened inside the plants to make workers feel safer and be safer. And I think it's important to make it clear that this was not uh, a legal limit, that this is all the agency can do. They decided They decided to issue this very late, months and months and months after they opened the inspection. They decided they would only issue one citation, and they decided to characterize it as a serious citation. Those are all decisions that they could have done differently. But then what did OSHA say about why the fine was that low? What was their rationale? The only explanation that they could give me or the only response or defense that they gave me was that the maximum amount fine that they can give for a serious violation is this fine that's a little over $13,000. However, critics of this are not critical that that's the most they can fine the companies for a single serious violation. Their criticism is really just one serious violation after months of dozens of problems that seem to fuel the virus inside these plants. It's not that this one violation only was this much. It's 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 a you know frustration that there wasn't a citation for every single violation that has been called to the attention of OSHA by these thousands of workers who have filed complaints mm-hmm. because they've gotten sick with COVID. They could have issued many citations for all the different jobs in the plant where they weren't practicing or weren't allowing employers to do what all of us are doing, and that is social distancing. They could have also issued it as a willful citation, but they opted to just, you know, send a message that this is just a slap on the wrist 
And I think most of us and even workers that I heard from felt like this was in a way worse than nothing because it just said to the industry, you know, you don't have to worry. OSHA has your back. They don't have the back of workers. We've interviewed people in the past who brought COVID home to their family and one man who killed his mother. He feels that way. He feels like he killed her because he brought COVID home from the plant that he worked in. Hmm. And so um, they're anguished, really, when I talk to them about how small these fines are. But then what do the owners and managers of the plant say, both about the amount of the fines that they receive from the government, but also about whether they actually are making changes in response to these grave experiences that their employees have had? Well, Smithfield and JBS, both interestingly, were very critical of how slow OSHA was too. Uh, They said that this kind of guidance would have been very helpful in late March or April, but for them to come up with this now, they said that they're exceeding the things that they're asking for at this point, that, you know, that ship sailed and they fixed things on their own. Now, I would say that the meat plant workers the union uh, reps and the work safety experts, they all say that they haven't done enough. I mean, there's still people getting sick. There's still people who are dying. It is dramatically slowed down, but there's still more that can be done. One of the things that could be done, but it would cost the plants money, is to slow down the processing line speeds. That would allow them to space out the workers so that they were six feet apart. Hmm. So so even now, there is not six feet of distance between people working inside the plant, even though that's like the general consensus of how everybody needs to be behaving right now. Right. The way they've been handling this is by putting plastic or other dividers that are made out of other materials between the workers. But they are literally uh, like two feet apart from one another with these dividers. Hmm. And there has been some research done that shows that it's not entirely effective, that that's not the best thing, that mass and getting them six feet apart is the way to go. The contention from the meat packers is that you can't do it. When it comes to social distancing, they have really pushed back hard. And I think the best example of this is Smithfield's chief executive, Kenneth Sullivan, uh, who sent a letter in mid-March to the Nebraska governor pushing back on this you know, stay-at-home order because he felt like it was causing uh, his workers to not show up. And then he really pushed hard on this idea of social distancing and the, and the call for it. What he said in the letter was, quote, social distancing is a nicety that makes sense only for people with laptops, end quote. He was directly and clearly saying, no, this can't be done in a meat plant. This is the sort of thing that white collar workers get, but not people who work in meat plants. In truth, if you slow down the processing lines where the workers are, you know, cutting pork into ham and, you know, chickens into drumsticks and beef into steaks, uh, where that kind of work is being done and they're very close together. If you slow down the line and you took out every other worker, you could have them six feet apart. It would mean lower profits and producing a lot less. Hmm. But part of me doesn't even understand that because if it's been documented that tens of thousands of workers at meat plants have gotten sick and some people have died, I mean, isn't that a bad look for them, bad for their business model? Wouldn't they have an incentive to also try to protect their workers so people aren't dying? 
Well, they would tell you that the numbers are going down and that they've taken lots and lots of measures that have created an environment that is as safe as it can be in a meat plant. So it's a matter of how far you want to go. And they're saying they've gone as far as they can. There's other people who have deep knowledge about how plants operate who say, no, there's more you could do. Yes, it will cost you in terms of your bottom line, but there's more that you can do. So then what would it take for that to actually happen? Well, you know, at this point, it really looks like there would have to be a willingness uh, on the part of meat plants to do it uh, because OSHA is not making them do it. They're saying six feet when it's feasible. Meat plants are saying it's not feasible. And you have an administration that, you know, Trump did an executive order several months ago where he said they were essential workers and that everything should be done to keep them them running and instituted guidelines that allow for this. It's clear that a lot of the hotspots in the spread of COVID-19 are in the workplace. And if we don't mitigate the spread at work, it's just going to spread back out into the community. And so when OSHA fails to require the meatpacking industry, where so many workers have gotten sick and so many have died and so many workers in the community have gotten sick, when OSHA fails to require the company step up and protect workers, this not only affects workers, but it affects the community and well, the whole public living in the area and in the states where those plants are. So it would really take a change in administration uh, or a change in how hard OSHA's would be, you know, cracking down them or the willingness of the meat plants to do it on their own. Kimberly Kindy is an investigative reporter at The Post. The pandemic has been a disaster for family physicians, particularly small, independent family physicians who really are like a small business. But imagine if your small business suddenly had basically no customers coming in the door. My name is Jim McNabb. I am a family physician in Mooresville, North Carolina. It's a town about a half hour north of Charlotte. So once the pandemic hit and the lockdown order was instituted in North Carolina, the uh, number of patients precipitously dropped in our practice, as, as in most practices. Family doctors, including pediatricians and primary care physicians, are among the lowest paid doctors in medicine. In my office, I uh, needed to decrease the uh, number of employees by one, but the ladies basically all got together and decided that they would rather share uh, that decrease equally rather than, than lose a team member. It was hard during that time. Family doctors are really sort of the frontline physicians in American healthcare. Their role, although they're the lowest paid in medicine, is absolutely crucial to the functioning of the health system. I'm Chris Rowland, and I'm a business of healthcare reporter at the Washington Post. So, how have things changed for primary care physicians since the beginning of the pandemic? They've had to really adjust on the fly. So, patients are not coming to the door because they're afraid of getting 
infected. They're actually discouraging patients from coming to the office because it could be a dangerous environment. But at the same time, the way primary care physicians get paid is by patient visits per visit. Really? So they so they just get like a fee for for each visit that they do? That's right. It's called fee for service medicine. So fee for service is how I work. And so I provide a service, we put a charge in for that, and then the patient insurance company what have you then, you know, pays for the service that was provided. So when the pandemic began and visits dried up, physician revenue plunged 30 to 50 to even 70%. Then when they were forced to adjust very quickly to doing video visits. And how does that affect both the quality of care that they're able to give, but also their ability to make a living? For example, many of their elderly patients were not familiar with how to do video medicine in the first place. And also they were fearful. So the physicians had to actually literally reach out to a lot of their patients and say, we're going to ask you to set up this app on your computer. You can imagine a lot of glitches and hiccups, very difficult. Luckily, one thing that did help the physicians was the government and private insurance companies both said on a temporary basis that they will reimburse the doctors for a video visit the same amount they would for an in-person visit. So some of that revenue did stay but it was still a dramatic decline in their practice revenues. There's estimates that as many as several thousand to 5,000 small family practices may have gone out of business or closed their doors or joined other larger groups since the pandemic began. Now, the reason that you might want to join a larger group if you're a small family practice is because there's strength in numbers Hmm. and they can help with a lot of things. But then what are the long-term consequences of that? If you have COVID putting some family doctors out of business and the ones who do survive are ending up joining larger practices, big corporate health groups, then what are the repercussions of that if that is a permanent shift? Several things. One is that your sort of local family practice that might be in your neighborhood is not accessible to you and you might have to go somewhere else for your care. You might not see the doctor that you're always familiar with seeing. There's also in those large groups, there's a lot more standardization. There's a lot more emphasis and pressure on the doctors for visits per day because a lot of those practices are more for-profit oriented. And so it's more sort of, you know, some people criticize it as more factory medicine. And the doctors who are in those practices have to really work hard to maintain their personal relationships with their patients as well as being able to maintain their independence to be able to exercise their own judgment and not just follow protocols that a computer tells them to follow that was you know, set by corporate headquarters. So there are some downsides, but there are some upsides too in terms of efficiency and frankly, having those protocols in the computers that are set by corporate headquarters can sometimes be beneficial. Hmm. But it still feels like a lot of Americans have these wistful ideas about a kind of Norman Rockwell-esque doctor, right? That you have a relationship with one person and he or she sees you and every member of your family. And and this is a person who, you know, might see you as a child and will stay with you through adulthood. In a lot of ways, it seems like that wasn't even the case still for many people up until this point. But it feels like for the places and the people for whom that was still the case, that the pandemic might just completely get rid of that. Yeah. And 
You know, it's really, I think it's most acutely felt in more rural areas and small towns where you don't have like very large practices or, you know, major hospital networks. It is something that is at risk of being lost over time. And coronavirus has accelerated that trend. There's a world of difference. It's a whole totally different environment. I talked to one expert who said like, you know, for some small town family practices, coronavirus has turned into an extinction level event. But it still seems like there's this fundamental problem with the fact that all these doctors are are making money through a fee structure and that that has become so unsustainable during these times. Is there any kind of questioning of that, of thinking that maybe this isn't the way that we should be doing healthcare, where doctors have to charge per visit, per procedure, that there could be a more sustainable way? Sort of healthcare wonks and academics and some large practices have been trying to figure out ways where patients are treated more holistically. Probably the more equitable way of being paid is to be paid a fee for comprehensive fee, uh, kind of an umbrella payment for care for a given period of time. Physicians are paid like per year, per patient or per type of patient to take care of that patient for the whole year. And then it's up to the doctor to keep that patient healthy, to keep that patient out of the hospital And they get paid on that basis as opposed to being paid for how many visits they get. Now, some people say coronavirus may help accelerate this with the recognition that fee-for-service, which has gutted primary care revenue, is now really going to be crucial moving forward, where you can integrate everything in your practice towards just keeping someone healthy, and including check-ins over the phone, check-ins on video. And it seems like in some ways... COVID is exacerbating a lot of existing problems in the healthcare system, especially when it comes to family doctors and and making things a lot harder. But in exposing those problems much more starkly, in some ways, like providing some hope that they might actually change. Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, I talked to uh, one expert at a state medical society who told me, look, you know, Coronavirus has exposed our healthcare system, warts and all, all the worst aspects of our reimbursement system, everything that doesn't make sense has actually gotten much worse during coronavirus. And what we need to do is take that opportunity and to figure out what structures can we put in place in terms of, you know, reimbursement systems, the way we care for patients. There's so many things that we can make different that could have, one, eased the impact of this coronavirus crisis on these uh, primary care. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. ...doctors as well as local hospitals, but also to make it so it's more efficient and more cost-effective overall for the healthcare system. Chris Rowland covers the business of healthcare for The Post. And now, one more thing. About a month ago, the Big Ten Conference became the first major conference to postpone fall sports, including football. 
At the time, Big Ten Commissioner Kevin Warren told the Big Ten Network that there was just too much uncertainty. A lot of the questions that we need to make sure that we have answered now that we were getting closer uh, to really going to the next phase of practice and getting closer to actually to, to have competition, there are just too many uncertainties to feel comfortable from a medical standpoint to proceed forward. Today, the league reversed its decision and announced plans to begin playing the weekend of October 24th. There won't be any fans, but according to officials like James Borchers, the team doctor for Ohio State football, they think that they can put college athletes on the field and keep them safe. These last uh, 40 days have been uh, an incredible example of collaboration and collegiality um, amongst uh, specialists from many different disciplines to investigate and, uh, and to put forward a pathway that will allow uh, our student athletes, we believe, to have a return to competition um, and do it in a uh, healthy and safe fashion. My name is Emily Giambavo and I cover college sports for The Post. Throughout the last month, there have been outcries from players, their parents, and coaches about why other major conferences in the country can play football and the Big Ten can't. But the official stance from the conference is that all of the medical advancements in the last month is what changed the decision. At a press conference on Wednesday, the president of Northwestern University made the argument that new science has really been a game changer. Medical advice I relied on when I voted five weeks ago said, Almost personally, no chance that we could do it safely. We weren't going to have the testing and all the safety protocols and uh, heart considerations and and all that. Medical opinion changed. There have been a lot of advances uh, in terms of understanding the pandemic and uh, myocarditis and the like over the past five weeks. These athletes are going to be able to be tested daily, and that's going to help prevent outbreaks within programs. Also, there were concerns about how the virus affects players' hearts if they test positive, and there will be advanced cardiac screening before they can return to play. And the Big Ten is taking a fairly conservative approach, and it's not going to allow players to come back until 21 days after they test positive. And they hope that's going to give them a chance to be screened and and ensure that they'll be safe when they do come back to the field. All summer, we've seen professional leagues return to play. And for the most part, they've avoided having outbreaks um, among teams and in their leagues. But the difference between professional sports and college is that at the professional level, they've been able to keep athletes in bubbles to where they're having no contact with the general public. And the only people using these set of facilities are the players and required personnel. That's not possible at the college level because the NCAA has a longstanding belief that athletes should be treated the same as regular students. So... These athletes can't be kept in a bubble like they can be at the professional level. And instead, they're having to mingle on campus with with other students. And there's no guarantee that they're going to be shielded from the outside world once they leave the football facility at night. I think one thing that schools are going to run into is just the ethical concern of giving these players hundreds of players daily tests and not providing those same resources to the students who are paying to be there at that school. And as we've seen, a lot of college campuses have struggled with outbreaks among its general student body, and and the Big Ten is no different. And yet the schools are going to return to football and, and giving these players resources that the average student doesn't have. And and we all know how much money football brings in. And I think that's evident here when you see 
how much these schools are trying to get back to playing, even when their campus community isn't really in a position that you would think is conducive to carrying on with with sports. Emily Giambalvo is a sports reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. We're working on a story about the emotional toll of the pandemic and remote learning on kids. If you have a kid who is learning remotely right now, we want to hear from you both. Record an interview between you and your child or teenager about how it's going, how they're feeling, and what they miss about school. You can use the Voice Memo app on a smartphone and send it as an email to postreports at washpost.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. This Post Reports podcast is sponsored by Facebook. At Facebook, we continue to take steps to better secure our platforms. What's next? We support updated internet regulations to set new standards for data portability, privacy, and elections. Learn more at about.fb.com regulation. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. Now.